What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hey, it's Crystal Knight and welcome back to the show brought to you by Newsweek. This month, the Supreme Court of the United States, which is a 6-3 conservative leaning court, is set to make a ruling on affirmative action. In a case brought by students from Harvard University and UNC Chapel Hill, the court is likely to decide that affirmative action will no longer be a policy that universities can use for admission. Why is this important? It's important because in states that have already banned affirmative action, Black and Latino enrollment has already dropped. But also, affirmative action not only affects college admissions, it affects other areas of our lives that we maybe we haven't thought about. And this week, I speak with the president of Color of Change, a racial justice organization who seeks to hold not only elected leaders, but people who are decision makers accountable, accountable for the decisions that they make, because the decisions that they make affect the day to day lives of many Americans. I'm excited about this conversation and I hope that you'll listen and learn something. And I hope that whatever happens with affirmative action, you decide that the court's decision isn't enough and that you'll take action and hold corporations, people, and bodies accountable. This week, I am speaking with Rashad Robinson. He is the president of Color of Change. Welcome to the show, Rashad. Thanks for having me. Can you just share with listeners generally, what is Color of Change? What's your purpose? What's your mission? And then we'll get right into our conversation. Color of Change is a next generation racial justice organization. We were founded in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, a flood that was caused by bad decision makers that turned to a life altering disaster by bad decision makers. And that moment really does animate our theory of change. Color of Change was founded when Black folks were literally on their roofs begging for the government to do something and left Mm -hmm. to die. And the thing about Katrina and the thing about so many of those moments is they oftentimes animate things that people already know. In the case of Katrina, it was geographic segregation, generational poverty, the impacts of what we've done to our planet and so much more. But at the heart of it, no one was nervous about disappointing Black people. And so the idea of color of change is to translate that outrage, that energy, that hope, that aspiration when moments hit and translate that energy, translate that presence into power, translate those moments into actual real change. And we do that through digital advocacy. We do that through offline engagement. And we do that um, with a a deep um, and abiding belief in strategic action. Black folks and allies of every race working to hold institutions accountable, working to make decision makers um, nervous about disappointing us and working to make real change. One of the things that you just stated was, you know, making decision makers nervous. I love that line. 
because today I really want to talk about affirmative action. It is before the Supreme Court of the United States. We know that the Supreme Court is a 6-3 leaning conservative court. And we also know that this particular court is likely to overturn affirmative action in its current state as we know it. And my first question for you really is, why is Color of Change engaged in this fight? Um, And how can Color of Change or how has Color of Change actually um, been holding the fire to the Supreme Court to let them know that their likely pending decision will greatly affect um, black and minority populations across this country? I think one of the big challenges we have with the Supreme Court, it's an unelected, unaccountable and deeply corrupt body. And so there's actually not much we can do to hold the Supreme Court accountable. And I think that that's important so that we're when I talk about strategic action, right, Mm -hmm. you're not going to also see a campaign from Color of Change that says, tell Mitch McConnell to stand up for affirmative action. There's no amount of black people signing a petition and our allies that is going to make Mitch McConnell change his position on affirmative action. And so we have to think about where are our levers? And we have been part of an effort to really um, call for um, deeper accountability, deeper ethics accountability on the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Um, what we have seen from uh, um, Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch and others on the court in terms of ethics violation does call for us to think differently about the court, whether it's expanding the court mm-hmm. and the number of members on the court, because nine wasn't always the number and there's nothing in the Constitution that says it has to be nine. And um, our country has changed so much and the dynamics have changed so much. Um, or it is or and it is a deeper level of accountability and consequence. Um, but something has to be done different about our Supreme Court right now. That is a piece of the larger puzzle. And with each decision that we see that comes down for the court, when they put their hand on the scale uh, for big corporations, mm-hmm. for special interest, um, for those who have already gotten so much out of this country and slam the door to opportunity to everyone else, more and more people see the sort of deeply unethical, um, undemocratic nature of this system and this structure. And part of what we recognize at Color of Change is not just enough for Black people to work to win inside of the structures. Right. Sometimes we have to change those structures. That's how we've Um, been able to win the right to vote. That's how we've been able to win so many policies that have opened doors to opportunity. And the court right now, no matter how much we do sometimes in terms of turning out people to vote or winning over hearts and minds, we have this group of nine that can make a decision that overturns the voices and aspirations and demands and dreams of millions upon millions of people. And the final thing I'll just share about the Supreme Court is that the majority of the members of court right now were placed there by presidents that did not win the popular vote. Well, I mean, I I think that that's important to highlight that, you know, who puts them there matters because it reverberates into the history of decisions that comes down um, from the court and how it affects everyday Americans' lives. And so just thinking about this case, it's it's being brought by Students for Fair um, Admissions Against Harvard. Um, and the, the, the two cases really that are before the court um, involve admissions around um, entry into Harvard University and entry into UNC Chapel Hill. Now, the interesting thing is I was doing research for this story about this case is that the case is being brought by Asian-American students. 
And one would just surmise or assume or maybe even guess that affirmative action um, benefits Asian-American students. It would benefit, you know, a minority, a designated minority population. And so the question becomes, well, why would they bring this case saying that they feel discriminated against when the very purpose of affirmative action, part of its purpose or one of the beneficiaries is them? And how should we think about that, Rashad, just in the racial lens context around who's bringing this case, what affirmative action is, and if it is ultimately wiped away, how it will affect the entry of other minority students who are Black, Latino, Native American? So I think there's a couple of things. I think first and foremost, we've done a really bad job of talking about affirmative action. It's been attacked culturally, right? Sometimes we often think the the people on the left do a much better job in Hollywood, but how many times have you watched a show or a TV show that might otherwise feel liberal and they're making a joke about an affirmative action hire or, <laughs> right. or affirmative action case or something like that? And, mm-hmm. and that I think is... Um, the decades of attacks on this policy Mm -hmm. um, have definitely sort of um, um, weakened its level of support and the support behind it. So I think that that's one thing. And I think that that's deeply um, important to the conversation. Another thing is we have to, I think, really recognize that we continue to defend affirmative action, um, but not force our opponents to defend the problem. So we make affirmative action the problem okay. when affirmative action is a solution to a problem. And it's a solution to the sort of unabashed, deep levels of privilege, white privilege that exists in society, right? White privilege that um, is unearned opportunity that is bestowed, um, not because someone has earned something. So if you look at um, a recent study of Harvard admissions, of admissions are reserved for three groups of people. Um, Hmm. Legacy admissions, which is um, the sort of definition of white privilege. Um, The um, um, what they call uh, the dean's interest list, which is basically kids whose parents can buy buildings or make big donations, which is another definition of white privilege and athletes. And one mm. might say, oh, well, maybe athletes get you diversity. But at Harvard, athletes are majority white right. and are actually sort of um, animated by kids who can take sailing and other types of sports that requires a level of investment. And so when you think about sort of the actual problem and how bad we have been, I think, on the left and actually talking about privilege and opportunity um, and the ways in which bias and discrimination is baked into every aspect of life. So the fact of the matter is, is we live in a country where a white high school dropout has more wealth than a black college educated person. And so mm-hmm. that right there is an example of how privilege operates. But the final thing I'll just say, and this really gets to the point that you're making about a- Asian students and API students, right. is that you always have to follow the money and mm-hmm. you always have to follow the power. And this case was actually brought by a man named Edward Blum. Mm -hmm. And Edward Blum is um, a conservative activist who has been behind many of the voting rights lawsuits that have attacked the Voting Rights Act and many other um, sort of cases. And he's a white man who Mm -hmm. has worked to assemble these cases and try to build sort of the network to actually bring these cases and recognize 
that he might be losing with white students. Got it. Um, so he's placed sort of a, a, a face, an unorganized lack of infrastructure behind it, a kind of what we what we call in the advocacy world uh, astroturfing, which is the kind of a, a, a nod to the fake grass right. on, mm-hmm. on on football fields. Um, but one sure sign that Bloom's lawsuit was focused on his ideology of preserving white privilege rather than sort of some noble pursuit of egalitarian fairness from API students um, who might be feeling left out is Blum's organization was the plaintiff in the case, not actual students. And his parallel case in UNC, the one student cited as being rejected as a result of discrimination against Asian students was actually white. Hmm. And so there are many Asian American leaders, scholars, students, and organizations who refuse to fall for this cheap ploy of a white man championing the race war in their name. Um, Somehow we know, though, that the Supreme Court's conservative majority doesn't really have a problem with ignoring Asian Americans and actual Asian American groups, just like they haven't had a problem with ignoring Black Americans and actual Black American groups. Wow. So this feels like a war on race. I mean, just to say it quite frankly, and to even understand that this case is being brought by a white man who's propping up Asian American students. It's disturbing, one. But two, it shows where this country is. And there's a deep divide ideologically. There's a deep divide racially. And then when you think about the case that happened a few years ago with you know, Hollywood actors paying people to help their children gain admission into some of the most elite schools in this country, then it just further disturbs the conversation, my spirit around why we're even here having this conversation at this high level, the Supreme Court level, when you have literal actors, white actors and actresses paying so that their children can be admitted. See that the, the- the white folks paying their way in, buying <laughs> buildings to get in, right. legacy thing, that's always been the case. It's always been part of how this country has worked and operated. And so I think that that's why this conversation of power, right? We mm-hmm. say at Color of Change, never mistake presence for power. Right. Presence is visibility, awareness, retweet, shout outs from the stage. Presence isn't bad. When we mistake presence for power, we can think we've done something that we haven't done. We can think that a Black president means that we're post-racial. We can think that America's love and celebration for Black celebrity means that America loves Black people as much as America loves Black culture. And America can love, celebrate, and monetize Black culture and hate Black people at the same time. And those two things don't have to be in conflict through policies, through practice. Uh, Power is the ability to change the rules. The written rules and the unwritten rules. And so when I think a lot about power and I think about what's at play here for power, I want to take us back to 2020 in the summer of 2020. Okay, take us back. And, and, you know, many people thought the best we could do in terms of activism and, and engagement during that time where so many of us were glued to screens because so many people were quarantined and so many people were not out. The best we could do in terms of activism was clap outside of our windows, right? (laughs) And it was racial justice that got people to the streets, motivated people to action, brought multiracial groups of people 
into motion, had people reading books they had never read before, learning about things like redlining, um, had people learning about all sorts of public policies and ways that um, disenfranchisement and um, and public policy has colluded mm-hmm. against the equity and opportunity of Black people. And people said they wanted to do more. We had more people saying that systemic racism is a real thing and right. exists, and they wanted to learn more about it. Mm-hmm. All the books that were trending were books about this. So, of course, we're going to see attacks on it, right? Because that threat to the very fabric of of so many people's ability to um, create wealth, right? If if you attack, if if people believe something different mm-hmm. about housing policy and education policy, they're going to want money to move differently, right? And and that means money moves away from people who were once winners because budgets are moral documents. They say more about what we care about than any speech or any any Black Lives Matter hashtag. And so, to the extent that uh, what we are seeing with many of these cases and the legacy of in the cases that came before was this ongoing um, backlash to the wins that we have been having as a movement. Because the fact of the matter is, if they don't close the door now mm-hmm. to the privilege based to the if they don't change, close the door now to more equitable opportunity to hiring, admissions and public investment and go back to a privilege-based society, the kind of opportunity that will exist right. um, will, will, will fundamentally shift. And I think like that's what we're dealing with. We are dealing with a whole sect of people that are deeply afraid. Some people who wanted racial progress to happen, but not really at you know, their expense. Right. Some people who never consented to mm-hmm. racial progress and um and change and then others who are kind of in the middle and and hopefully we can get more of them on our side who know that there's something wrong but isn't aren't quite sure how they want to be invested in doing something about it but i think that all of this i think is very important this is happening right now for a reason it's happening right now because many of the people um, who stand to benefit the most from keeping the hierarchy in place, recognize they are breathing some of their last breaths if they don't <laughs> actually do the thing that they need to do, which is slam the door on opportunity, to slam the door on equity, to slam the door on progress. And because affirmative action, while deeply imperfect, right. was one of the best antidotes we had to white privilege, mm-hmm. they are course going to attack it because it was a policy that was working. And to be clear, Mm -hmm. let's be clear, affirmative action on its very, very, very best day was never as powerful as white privilege. That's right. It was never, it did not get us as far. It did not, it did not change a zip code. It did not change a police interaction. It did not change um, um, a tracking that could happen inside of a school. It did not tra- change the written and unwritten policies and rules and day in and day out interactions mm-hmm. that create all sorts of opportunity and slam the door on opportunity for others. Wow. So maybe share with our listeners, people who may say, well, I don't understand what the big deal about it is. I mean, obviously, you know, I care about it, which is why I'm having this conversation with you. And obviously your organization cares about it. But sometimes people have a hard time. And this is not just with affirmative action, but just with 
equity and race in general, they see minorities, um, you know, being added as as white people being taken away. They don't look at it as, you know, we're, we're expanding the table. We're adding more diversity. We're adding more of a colorful thought, you know, to the process. They look at it. And when I say they, I mean, white people, they look at affirmative action, some and some look at diversity as a taking away. And I'd like for you to just really wrestle with that thought and break that down how we're here, you know, in society today where we're at this just really deep racial divide. We're at this moment where even this policy could even be challenged um, when it's, you know, again, as you stated, while imperfect, it has made some progress in this country. Yeah. Well, if you've always had some level of opportunity or if you've had kind of a, a leg up, mm-hmm. you're going to view um you know, steps and movements for greater equality as, as unfair. And, um, and that I think is what we're seeing here. You know, I hear it all throughout our work. Color change works across many different industries from mm-hmm. Silicon Valley to Hollywood to holding corporate America accountable. And of course our government affairs work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's animated, right. In the kind of, you know, in Hollywood, I see it as like the proverbial white writer in Hollywood who says that, you know, he can't get any work because no one wants to hire white writers anymore, right? <laughs> right? And then you go and look at the numbers and you see that 80% of Hollywood writers are still white men. Wow. Um, but like, you know, a little bit of diversity somehow means that like people are getting in that don't deserve to get in in some right. ways because you've always viewed um, kind of a homogeneous sort of set up mm-hmm. as being um as being fair as being mer- as being merit based right. because you've never interrogated sort of how um we can how that can exist and mm-hmm. i feel like that i think is very much for me animates why this work um is so important but why if you care about this country's future if you care about multiracial democracy and i know that can just feel like a, you know, a couple of words string together, depending if you, if you use a hyphen or not. And if, you know, and if you, if you put those, if you put, if you put those three words or two words together, if you put them together and you think about multiracial democracy, in some ways it's really animated by our ability to work together, make decisions together, our ability to be able to share power and leverage power, to be able to come to consensus, to be able to disagree and still find paths forward to be able to recognize the um, equality of people we disagree with, to right. express our will for a better future, regardless of whether we are privileged or votable mm-hmm. in the majority or the minority or in favor or out of favor with those who are in power. And so this is why talking about the problem of privilege right. and really highlighting this, this deep problem with bias and discrimination that exist in our society and actually pushing and forcing institutions to be able to come to really clear solutions for how they're going to deal with it. And that's part of what we're doing at Color of Change. When this decision comes down, which we believe will in some way undermine affirmative action, mm-hmm. our call is going to be to campuses and universities to release their plans yeah. on how they're actually going to be 
um, ensuring equity and inclusion. What are are the things they're going to be doing now that they don't have the tool of affirmative action? Mm -hmm. And how are they going to be making sure that they are not just leaning in to a privilege-based setup? Because all of these universities will still keep giving access to their donors. Absolutely. Who've been able to largely gain wealth and access to privilege when all of us couldn't compete, were able to win when we were being redlined and excluded from banks and everything else. They've got unfair advantages along the way. They're going to include people who are legacy admissions. And we know the history of segregation in this country, the history of unequal access. So those are folks who are actually getting a leg up, not from something that they earned. And we know universities will still use that to, to fast track people's, um, um, you know, walk through the front door of a university, um, or that maybe they're walk through the side door right. of that university. So what are they doing to spur that? Um, what is Congress and the federal government doing around investments and other sort of places? We know what the funding and support looks like for schools that where black and brown young people largely go. So already we know in this country that our schools are underfunded. And then you and that is a choice that our government is making Correct. to unf- underfund certain schools to give you some young people based off of their zip code, which which then translates and has a deep translation to race, mm-hmm. a different set of choices and a different set of opportunities. And then we also know that there's an environment of enablers. There will be corporations who will try it. Right. Right. When this comes down, they will try to eliminate scholarship programs, internship programs. They will talk about DEI and diversity and all of those things. And we will we will not let them do it in the dark. We will shed light and spotlight on their behavior and their activity and their actions, because that will be critical and important. And then the final thing is that there's places that are validators. Right. U.S. News and World Report, for instance, releases. um a survey, a, um, a, a, a listing and ranking that we know universities take very clearly, yep. but they fight to get higher on that because it means something for their mission standards. If they're going to give extra credit for hot yoga, then they actually need to make sure they hold accountable these universities for how they're actually ensuring uh, diversity and equity and inclusion in their admissions classes mm-hmm. and how they're actually dealing with the systemic failures of our government um, and others um, and holding universities accountable. So we are gonna be mobilizing folks because we know um, at Color of Change fundamentally that we will always lose in the back rooms if we don't have people lined up at the front door. And so our invitation um, when these decision comes down to everyone who's listening Mm -hmm. um, is to line up with us at the front door. That's to great. join us in this fight, to raise your voices, to join in this, this because this is about, as I said, the future of our ability as a democracy to have a society that actually um, creates the systems and the possibility for opportunity and equity for all of us. Well, that's great. And I, I love that you all are already thinking about um, post-decision organizing And getting in front of, you know, what will likely, you know, take shape not only at the university level, but I love that you brought up the corporate level and how there are many corporations right now who do provide scholarships. And this is just their their entryway. And we've already seen this. Really, I think we're seeing it right now in the state of Florida with Governor Ron DeSantis and his anti-education legislation that he's already signed into law. But there are other, you know, states who have anti-affirmative action. And we've seen 
black and Latino enrollment down because of it. But also if you if you have states like Florida where governors are banning this just statewide, not not so for, like, yes, affirmative action, but also diversity, equity and inclusion. How do we you know, how do we put pressure on these corporations to make sure that they continue to step up because their support is even more vital during times where the federal government has, you know, done overreach or the governor of a state has has had undue overreach. I mean, these corporations will say, no, they can't. And mm-hmm. we built enough pressure and power to force them They're They are licking their fingers and putting them up in the air and seeing which way the wind blows. Right. And so part of organizing and activism is to direct the wind and to make sure that they feel the pressure Mm -hmm. and they feel the energy. And that is why um, the investment of people um, and people power in this is so critically important. We may not have the money that Ed Bloom has behind him with his list of billionaires. Um, We do need money, but we don't have that money. Mm -hmm. Um, What we do have, hopefully, is the people. Yeah. And the people willing to stand up, fight back and push. And that, um, for me, is so critically important right now because mm-hmm. um, we are we are we are facing um, not just right these attacks on affirmative action. We are facing um, our books and our history being right. banned. Um, we are facing more and more attacks on our ability um, to um, vote. Yep. And so we're being blocked from schools blocked from hiring, blocked from the voting booth, um, blocked from so many places um, that should rightfully be our place just like they're everyone else's. Right. And that um, and those laws are by design. They are by design to be able to take this country backwards, um, to be able to set up a system where some people have more opportunity, some people have more privileges. And it's a very, um, you know, transparent, attempt to make the solution the problem. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing, whether it is the attacks on books or the attacks on affirmative action, is it tries to get us to start talking about the solution, right? Whether we're talking about educating and helping young people understand a wide range of history, which is a solution, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Or whether it is an antidote to privilege, like affirmative action. These are solutions. And and you always have to be skeptical of anyone that um, that spends all their time attacking the remedy to a problem while allowing the problem to sit there untouched, unattacked, yeah. and unintegrated. Yeah, that's a great point. And how this case just allows further racial divide to continue to persist, not only at the systemic level, but even just the collegiate level and even the corporate level, which is something that I I find very intriguing and interesting that you brought up. But as we really wrap up this conversation, what's one or two things that you'd like to leave with our listeners just as they're processing what could happen and what is about to happen in this country? How should we think about, you know, not only admissions into schools, but even in the workplace? This isn't necessarily about trying to fill a quota, um, but, making sure that qualified people have a fair and equitable shot 
at a number of different things in this country. So not only jobs, but housing, um, transportation. There's so many areas where affirmative action can take place and have tenants. But how should we think of this country and race in this country and admissions in this country, understanding that this policy of affirmative action may likely um, be done with? Yeah, I think I think it's important because we're seeing a number of cases come down from the courts. And I think one thing that I think is important for listeners to understand is that sometimes we think about each of these incidents, each of these cases, each of these attacks on equality as separate. Mm -hmm. But the opponents to equity are all seeing them connected. Right. Right. The 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 folks that are part of the donor trust, donors trust, Mm -hmm. which help to fund um, Edward, Bl- Edward Blum's work, um, you know, are funding other things, other attacks. And so we can't go into our individual corners and fight for our individual shares of the, of the pie because the pie is not big enough for us to fight that way. Right. The pie will be big enough if we recognize that there's enough for us to share, mm-hmm. right? If we, if, we, if, we get, if we sit around the same table together. And so I think that that's the one that's one thing that I want people to remember is that these coordinated attacks aimed at shutting the door to progress, aimed at turning us backwards, aiming at cementing and implanting privilege based, discrimination based, bias based hiring, admissions and public investments is part of a larger strategy of um, ensuring that this um, country um, is um, is accessible for a smaller and smaller minority of people. Um, And that I think is um, important. And then, you know, I think, you know, I think it's just important for us to remember historically. And the thing I will remember is that in the 60s, the conversation about race had been about letting Black people in, Mm -hmm. into voting booths, into politics, Mm -hmm. into, you know, jobs and roles in America, from which we had been excluded by written and unwritten rules. But by the 80s, right, conservatives had already changed that conversation. And it was about white America's second thoughts about that. And maybe they had let too many of us in. Yeah. And they should start closing those doors back up. And I think that it's actually incredibly important for us to remember sort of where we're at. And I, and I say this for sometimes Black and brown people who might scoff sometimes at, at thinking maybe they benefited from affirmative action, maybe uh-huh. not wanting to think they benefit from affirmative action. Let me be very clear. <laughs> there is no amount of affirmative action that is powerful as white privilege. Come on, say that. So if you have benefited from affirmative action, that does not outweigh mm-hmm. all of the privilege and access that was not afforded to you. And so let us just be very clear about that mm-hmm. so that we actually can be motivated to fight for the right things. And we don't actually um, allow ourselves Mm -hmm. to be captured by um, arguments that are not for us, that are not about us, and that are not in our interest. And so if we truly um, want to sort of create a real fairness, once again, we have to attack the problem. And the problem is that unmitigated set of privileges. And while affirmative action... um, might no longer be the sort of accessible solution that we have. Right. This now is the moment for us to get together and fight for the types of 21st century solutions and demand them from our government, 
demand them from our corporations, demand them from our education institutions, and hold anyone else accountable that wants to drag us back to the days um, in which accessibility opportunity and progress was not achievable or was not visible. And that for us at Color of Change is how we hope to translate the presence of this mm-hmm. moment, like I said earlier, right. presence into power. You know what, Rashad Robinson of Color of Change, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts just about where we are and how this case um, will affect you know the, the public at large. And also thank you for the work that you're doing through your organization. There are so many things that you could be focused on and fighting for more equity, more equality, um, a deeper lens and understanding about racial justice is so critical. So I want to just say kudos to what you and the organization is doing to advance rights for black and minority populations across this country. And, and just thank you again for your time today. Appreciate you. Thanks for having me on and, and this great conversation. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Crystal Night Show brought to you by Newsweek. The best way you can support us is to give your five-star review on Apple iTunes and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast to The Crystal Night Show. After being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. She's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.